Welcome to episode number 152 of the Northern Miner podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I'm the online editor of the Northern Miner, and I also help take care of the social media. We have an interesting lineup for you today, including a presentation by Paul Zimniski, who's an independent diamond industry analyst and consultant. He's been on the show before, and he is definitely one of the go-to analysts in the mining industry. And uh, yeah, his presentation took place at the Diamonds in Canada Symposium in June at the TMX Broadcast Center that's put on by the Northern Miner. And it's, one of the, again, one of these beautiful locations that we're very fortunate to have uh, for our events. And so, yeah, that's coming up. And speaking of events, we have the Progressive Mine Forum, which is coming up in only a month. It's on October 16th, 2019 at the Mars Discovery District, another one of these beautiful locations. And it's a very, it's a funky location. It's cool and forward-looking. If you've never been in the building before, you can tell it was designed with the future in mind. The lineup is a mix of tech and mining people, and really that's what this whole conference is about. As the tagline says, it's the next generation solution for today's mining challenges. So you, if you go to northernminer.com slash PMF 2019, uh, you can register your interest in the conference. You'll see people like uh, George Hemingway from the Stratalist Group. He's the head of innovation practice. You'll see Tony McCook, who's president and CEO of Kirkland Lake Gold. You'll see Pavel Abdur Rahman. He's the partner and a data scientist for IBM Services. Uh, Stephen DeYoung, the CEO of Verify. He's also involved in the mining industry, as we well know. There's Alex Fuentes, Vice President of Business Development and Marketing at Hydro Store. Uh, Culver Singh Gill, who's Associate Director of Development Partnership Institute. Nadine Miller, who is a director at West Home Gold Mines, and Payman Moini, uh, the president of Paytech Incorporated, and much more. And so if you are interested, you can just visit northernminer.com slash PMF2019. And if you are interested in sponsoring the event, I believe we still have sponsorships available. And so if you're interested, you could visit our contact page and scroll down and look for Michael or Joe and feel free to email them or give them a call if you just want more information. And this is true across all our products. If you're interested in just getting your message out there, again, don't hesitate to contact these guys. They're very friendly individuals and they'll be more than happy to help you out and let you know what's possible. So coming up on the show, we're gonna go through the website, we're gonna go through metal prices, and then we're gonna go through this featured presentation with Paul Zimniski. You can find us online at northernminer.com and on Twitter, at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And turning to the website, we have a flurry of new stories here. If you look at our last edition, we had the site visit to Continental Gold Spiritica project, and that was done by David Perry, who recently got promoted to content supervisor here at the Northern Miner, so we congratulate him on that. David writes a story maybe once a month, and they're always very interesting. And David's been with the paper for quite a while. So it's always interesting to get views, especially in a site visit of uh, what I call veteran mining journalists. And yeah, so at Britica, I mean, a couple of highlights here. It's scheduled to deliver 253 ounces of gold per year, on average over a 14-year mine life. The company estimates all-in sustaining costs of $604 per ounce gold. So... 
pretty good numbers there, particularly the AISCs, or All in Sustaining Costs, as they're also known. Continuing on in the article, the U.S. $512 million mine is 75% complete, according to an August update from the company, and construction has proceeded as planned for the most part. (laughs) For the most part. Good. Well, it sounds like things are going fairly well at uh, Continental Gold's Beritica project in Colombia. So that is available on the website. You're also going to find, we have a new story on Ontario working with First Nations to unlock the Ring of Fire. This is a very important subject. We've discussed it before in previous episodes with Bill Gallagher. If you go back to episode number 138 and 139, you'll have episodes, the title is Indigenous People as Resource Rulers in Canada, featuring Bill Gallagher. And that's a two-part episode. And Bill Gallagher is a, I want to call him a total expert on this subject. He has a Twitter feed, at Resource Rulers. And if you follow Bill, you'll see Yeah, he's really an expert on it. I believe he's written two books on the subject. He's been in documentaries. And so so this story, Ontario to work with First Nations to unlock Ring of Fire, I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs here. Rick Gregford, Minister of Energy, Northern Development and Mines and Minister of Indigenous Affairs, announced in August that the provincial government would work directly with First Nation communities to develop infrastructure that unlocks the mineral-rich region in northern Ontario. So it looks like they're going to be doing new agreements and they're establishing bilateral agreements with individual First Nation communities. And this is going to replace the previous Liberal government's collective negotiations approach, which was done under a 2014 framework agreement with nine Matawa First Nation communities. And so I think this bilateral way of going. This seems like a negotiation trend in global politics is to go more bilateral. So I guess people just feel the more personal one-on-one approach might work better for everybody. And it's hoped by the Ontario government that by establishing these better bilateral relations between individual First Nation communities, that the North-South Corridor to the Ring of Fire will finally be built. This road that they need and just general infrastructure. Noront Resources, which says it holds 85% of all claims staked in the Ring of Fire, And Martin Spall, First Nation, released a statement in August applauding the provincial government's move. And here's a quote. We are encouraged by the Ontario government's support and commitment to develop on an expedited basis the Ring of Fire mineral deposits and associated infrastructure, which will be shared between community and industry use, the joint statement said. So they put out a joint statement about it. So that's available on the Northern Miner website. Also, we have a new story which came out yesterday Osisco Mining drills for roots of windfall system. And the guys at Osisco, who apparently a lot of the team who discovered Canadian Malarctic, uh, which of course was taken over by, I believe, Agnico and Yamana for about $4 billion. A lot of that team is with Osisco Mining, and they're getting pretty excited about their windfall deposit in Ontario. John Berzaniski, the company's president and CEO, Uh, gave an interview from the Beaver Creek Precious Metals Summit in Colorado. And he said, quote, Windfall is turning out to be the same kind of deposit as Malarctic in that it's always given us a little bit more than we hoped for. It's a very generous deposit. And he continues in a different part of the article, quote, One mistake people make is that they don't put enough drilling into a deposit before they make a production decision. We want to make certain about what we have. At Canadian Malarctic, we had 17 drill rigs at the peak 
and drilled about 1.1 million meters. And when you look at what we predicted, it was plus or minus 1%. So interesting advice from a guy who's done quite well in exploration is do more drilling, which is, yeah, from, from an expert here. And now this story, it sounds like they're trying to find the roots of this system, as they say. And if we look at this quote, Brzezinski continues, what we want to see are the roots of the system. The geological model is that there's a feeder system at depth that is pushing up the gold into our resource. And the article continues, Brzezinski believes that deep exploration will eventually drive windfall into the ranks of the world-class, high-grade, and long-life underground mines in the Canadian Archean. And finally, quote, it's a good deposit as it stands right now, but eventually, given enough time and drilling, it will become another Canadian world-class ABTB gold mine, he predicts. Read more about that on thenorthernminer.com. That's a new one. When you hear about investing, some people just go by the team. You know, I think Robert Friedland is one of these guys. Some people just, I think, you know, Rick Rule will talk about, say, Robert Friedland and other mining teams. And some people just follow the management. And it's maybe not a terrible strategy. Who knows? Moving on, we have an investment by Rob McEwen in Crystal Lake Mining. This is one of our fast news pieces. And the reason I bring it up is because we were just talking about the British Columbia's Golden Triangle last week. And Crystal Lake has an option to earn 100% interest in the Newmont Lake project, which has the largest land package among juniors in the broader SK region in Northwest British Columbia's Golden Triangle. Also, we have a Taranga story, and they're ahead of schedule at the Wahigno mine in uh, Burkina Faso, and that's a landlocked country in West Africa. I'll just read you a quick quote on that from the CEO, uh, Richard Young. Uh, it's wonderful to bring a new mine on in this type of gold price environment where you get gold prices at a six-year high, so we're thrilled. He adds that Wahignan will generate roughly $60 million per year in free cash flow for the first five years based on a gold price of $1,250 per ounce. Quote, it is a small but a very profitable mine for us. And uh, they acquired this mine in October 2016 as part of the company's all-share purchase of Gryphon Minerals. They began plant construction in 2018 after they secured $165 million debt financing. And quote, we were able to complete the drill program, update the feasibility study that has been done on the project, finance, move into construction, and first pour in less than three years. And that does sound pretty fast for a mining project. So congratulations to the guys at Taringa. Very interesting story. And finally, uh, first half gold demand jumps on central bank buying and ETF demand. And uh, the World Gold Council has provided a new update saying that central bank demand is up 8% for the first half of 2019 compared to last year. And it says here, quote, central banks bought 224.4 tons of gold in the second quarter of 2019. This took first half buying to 374.1 tons of gold, the largest net first half increase in global gold reserves in our data series. In a continuation of recent trends, buying was spread across a range of largely emerging market countries. Interesting. EM central banks are buying gold. Holdings of gold back, it continues here. Holdings of gold backed ETFs grew 67.2 tons in the second quarter to a six year high. 
of 2,548 tons and continued geopolitical instability, dovish commentary on monetary policy from central banks, and the rallying gold price in June were the main factors driving inflows into the sector. So thanks to the World Gold Council uh, for another great update. And yeah, speaking of gold, it's time for metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we go to our friends at infomine.com, and here we are. September 17th, gold is at $1,499.35. This is slightly up from last week's price that we had on this show of $1,494. Silver is at $17.86, which is just a little bit below last week. Uh, Platinum is at $932.86, again, just a little bit lower than last week at $941. And Palladium is higher at $1,595.35. And Copper continues to go higher as well at $2.68. This is a September 13th quote on copper, as well as the following metals will also is also a September 13th quote. Aluminum is at 80 cents, and that's even compared to last week. Lead is at 95 cents, slightly higher than last week's 92 cents. Nickel is back above $8. It's at $8.08, and that's growing off of the $7.94 from last week, near its highs for the year. And tin is at $7.84, again, slightly higher from last week. And cobalt continues its impressive run. It's at $16.56. Last week it was taking off and it was at $15.99. So at $16.56, cobalt is really running away with the prize. And zinc is also slightly higher at $1.08. And that's three cents higher than last week's show. So that's the metal prices. It looks like the precious metals are down and industrial metals are up. Coming right up, we have a presentation by Paul Zimniski, and he's an independent diamond industry analyst and consultant who specializes in global diamond supply and fundamentals. And he is giving a talk at the Diamonds in Canada Symposium in June at the TMX Broadcast Center. And Northern Miner Group publisher Anthony Vaccaro is doing the introduction. We hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you on the other side. Uh, we're really honored to have Paul join us again for the second year. He comes all the way in from New York, did an absolutely fabulous job last year. He's an independent analyst, has such a great handle on, on the sector and uh, what's going on with diamonds. Paul's a CFA. He's worked in capital markets for over 10 years. He's held roles as a metals and mining analyst, an arbitrage trader, an exchange-traded fund developer, and as a consultant. And as I said, we're very honored to have Mark, our Paul with us here today. So, Paul, please. Everyone, uh, nice to see so many familiar faces. Thank you again for putting this event on. I think this industry needs some love right now, and uh, I think it's a great bit of confidence that everybody came out. And I always, I love an excuse to come to Canada, and Toronto's one of my favorite cities, so uh, 
so I'm an independent analyst. Um, I'm just going to try to go through, we'll go over the, maybe the last 12 months of the industry, kind of what's happened, then we'll go into supply, demand, and kind of how that's going to impact uh, prices, in my opinion, going forward. Um, and then I'll just briefly touch on um, lab-created diamonds. Everybody kind of wants to talk about that. That's kind of the hot topic of conversation, but we're doing the panel later, so I'll kind of save, save most of that for the panel. We were here a year ago. Things were, you know, looking up. I think there was a lot of positive enthusiasm. <clears throat> on the demand side, the retailers had a, had a really good holiday season. You know, first half of 2018 was, was looking pretty strong. Um, Tiffany was raising guidance. Signet was raising guidance. So when you look at all the, the major downstream drillers and, and the retailers that deal directly with the customers, they were noting that demand was pretty strong. Shares of Tiffany were at an all-time high. And then when you look at, you know, the mining side of the business, the supply, you know, we're starting to see supply come in. Um, inventories held by De Beers and Arroz, so we're at, you know, multi-year lows. So the fundamentals were really shaping up, and it was looking good, and I think it was easy to get enthusiastic about uh, 2018. However, you know, the second half of the year was disappointing. You know, a few reasons, in my opinion, as to why that was. You know, China, which is probably the most important large growth market for end consumer demand of this industry, is probably approaching 20% of end consumer demand. The second half of the year, you know, their economy slowed, the stock market sold off. I've, you know, I've talked to some of the Chinese, and they said it wasn't a sell-off, it was a crash. So, you know, weak, weak financial markets there kind of led to reduced consumer sentiment in that market, and I think that was directly influenced with the retailers. And then in the U.S., we had a, we did have a, you know, a really sharp stock market sell-off right in December, and that was the ever-important holiday shopping season, and it definitely impacted consumer sentiment. In the midstream, there was, you know, the alleged fraud um, that was brought to light early last year in India. These are not only manufacturers, but they're also very public figures within the industry, within the country, and I think, you know, the, the unfolding of, of that event had, had negative, you know, sentiment on not only the, the industry and the industry's availability to borrow money, but also consumer sentiment, given that they have their names on a lot of retailers in India. So last year was it was a disappointing year for, I'd say, Indian consumer demand, but that's one of the most exciting markets um, you know, for the industry going forward as far as end consumer demand. And given that, we still saw positive growth overall for global diamond uh, demand last year with the weak India. I think that kind of shows potential upside if we see recovery in that market. This is um, my proprietary rough diamond index. You could see you know, since reaching a high in 2011, and just, just quickly to explain what happened there. So we had the global financial crisis. Credit came in, supply came in. Right around that time, the industry was really starting to see Chinese consumer demand pick up. We're the first generation in China began giving diamond engagement rings. So you're seeing this, you know, surge in demand and supply was coming in after the credit crunch and it led to an all-time high in rough and polished prices in the first half of 2011. And that, you know, ultimately led to more exploration and development. We had uh, three new projects come online in 2017. You know, we've had an oversupplied market. Uh, when you look at why prices have been, you know, relatively flat to down, it's, it's been more of a supply issue than a demand issue, uh, in my opinion. I think the good news is that the relatively weak prices, I think, has reduced, you know, the amount of new products that probably will be coming online in the future. So I think we're going to see a, a natural pairing of supply, which will be, I think, supportive of prices going forward. This is just a chart I put together just to show how difficult, you know, this industry has been. These are publicly traded uh, diamond producers. You know, they've been down, you know, three years in a row, you know, 17% in 2017, almost 30% last year, and, and they're down again this year. And I think this is kind of a reflection of, again, more of an oversupplied market more so than a demand issue, which I think is, is good because I think the supply situation is going to resolve itself naturally given where prices are now. And when we look at diamond prices, I think, you know, it's, it's a nuanced commodity. There's 10,000 different categories. It's not fungible like gold or copper or oil. So it's a little bit more nuanced when you look at diamond prices. And I just wanted to show here 
Um, there's a dislocation the last few years of smaller diamonds and, and medium and larger diamonds, and the medium and larger categories have actually, they're actually up, you know, the last few years, but that, that smaller category is down, you know, 15 to even, you know, 30% in some categories. So it's sharp decline in that small category, and that's what's, um, you know, kind of uh, kept the ceiling on indexed rough prices. You know, I wanted to touch on this again because it's such an important, uh, you know, I, I think, um, development in the industry right now. The, the, the small diamond market is oversupplied, and I think part of that's because of the new, uh, the, the new projects that came online in 2017. You know, a lot of them have product mixes that are maybe geared towards smaller sizes, but you also have the Russians have increased their alluvial diamond operations, which are geared towards smaller sizes, and that was following the, the Mir Mine accident they had in, uh, a, a couple of years ago. So they ramped up production of alluvial operations that have skewed their product mix towards the smaller categories. And again, just trying to quantify here, the differentiation in medium and small diamonds and, and large diamonds. The medium and the smalls have actually been up, but the, the, that smaller category is down you know, quite significantly. And then just one other thing nobody really talks about, but when you look at you know, the technological advancement and recoveries in XRT and what that's done for the industry, I think it's been really good. It's, it's, it's really increased the efficiencies, but I think it's also recovered a lot, a lot more smaller diamonds that would have went to tailings in the past. So I think that's part of the reason, again, why the, the smaller category is oversupplied. And, Nobody really talks about that, but I think that's just that that's the reality is more efficient recoveries. And then I just put a, a bullet on the impact from lab diamonds. Um, I think it's relatively minimal. Um, I think the biggest implication of lab diamonds on the smaller category is, you know, smaller HPHT diamonds from China making their way through the supply chain as natural. And that's because the price differentiation between lab created and, and natural in the small categories is, is very tight. So for manufacturers, they say it's, in some cases it's not even economic to screen it to see if it's natural or not. And that's something I think the industry is very aware of. I think it's, you know, potentially quite problematic for the industry, but I think when you look at the major players, everybody's aware this is going on. They're taking the measures necessary to make sure that screening equipment is available to industry participants throughout the supply chain and, and to make it available and affordable. So I think we're getting to a point where mostly everybody in the industry is going to be equipped with screening equipment. I think that's going to take care of this problem. And just uh, one more slide on the small market here. I just listed a couple case studies on the impact that smaller diamonds have on, say, a producer like Lucara, which produces large, um, you know, larger tend to be higher quality diamonds, and then a, a producer that tends to have a product mix uh, skewed towards the lower. So someone like Firestone has more sensitivity to a smaller diamond than someone like Lucara, even though the, the, the actual volume of supply is still quite significant with a smaller category. But from a value standpoint, it, 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 it's quite uh, insignificant. So moving on to supply here, this is my forecast going out to 2025. I mean, it, it looks pretty good. I think, you know, we hit a high watermark in production in 2017. I don't think we're going to see that level uh, of, of volume um, coming out of the ground again. And, and again, you know, I think everybody here knows how long it takes to get a new project into production and, um, and how complicated and expensive a process it is. So. I think we can get a, you know, a, a, a pretty good you know, five to ten year view into the future of what production is going to look like. And I think it's easier to do that with diamonds and some of the other commodities. So, so again, I, I think the, the supply picture is, is, you know, is, is quite bullish from a diamond price standpoint. And, uh, and, and at this point, I think uh, you know, if we continue to see demand that's relatively stable or continuing to grow even at low, single digits, uh, I, I think it's going to bode well for, for diamond prices going forward. This is something I've been trying to analyze for a long time. It's a midstream segment of the industry. Um, I think everybody's always trying to figure out what the supply looks like there. 
it's, it's difficult. This is mostly based on Indian government data. They uh, deal with, they manufacture most, most rough diamonds and the polished globally. I think we're definitely seeing a deleveraging in the midstream and there's multiple reasons for that. A lot of the smaller players aren't economic in the current environment. There's been um, credit you know, to the midstream industry has been reduced, so the manufacturers have less capital to speculate, so they're holding less speculative inventory. And I think this is good because we're getting to a more normalized level. I would say 2010, 2011 was kind of, kind of the, you know, the, the minimal inventory held, and you can see we're at uh, the lowest point based on this analysis since uh, 2010, 2011. So, Again, when I was speaking of you know, oversupply in the industry, we had, uh, again, global rough supply uh, from mine hitting a high in 2017, but we also have had excess supply coming out of the midstream segment. So, I mean, there was a lot of supply coming into market. Um, and, and again, that's, in my opinion, what's kind of kept that ceiling on, on rough prices. But I think we're getting to a point now where, we're, again, we're seeing you know, mine supply decreasing. We're seeing the inventory that's held by the major producers is at multi-year lows or just off of multi-year lows, and we're seeing a normalization of supply in the midstream. So I think all of these things together, um, I think, paint a, paint a pretty good picture from a supply standpoint. And, and just to cut a note, a few other reasons why you know the, the midstream um, has been destocking, um, I think this is a pretty interesting thing to look at. This is the rupee dollar. So the Indian rupee, uh, the, the currency that the Indian manufacturers use to convert to dollars when they buy rough diamonds because diamonds are traded in U.S. dollars. So their purchasing power has been decreasing since you know, 2008. That's kind of limited their ability to, to buy rough. But I think that's starting to normalize. And at this point, I think most of the downside has probably been realized in the rupee. It's tough. It's a, it's a big macro thing. It's, it's a very difficult thing to figure out. But I think the FX is going to have less of an impact on, on Indian manufacturers going forward. So again, I think that's something else that could be a, you know, a positive takeaway as to where we are right now. And then just a couple slides on demand here. So I'm forecasting demands. Uh, if we look at global um, diamond and consumer demand, which is how I quantify it, I'm expecting you know, a 35 to 4% growth this year, this year, which is down from, um, you know, five and a half to six percent last year. When you look at diamond demand, it's heavily correlated with global GDP. Um, so that's kind of the basis for how I model this. You know, I think everybody's aware of the U.S. trying to uh, trade tensions, Brexit. There's, you know, expectations that the U.S. economy is going to slow and maybe enter a recession, a mild recession next year. So I think all of these are, are kind of reasons why we might see a, a moderation in uh, in, in demand this year, but I think where we're at right now, I, I think we will still see positive demand growth year over year, even though it's going to be low single digits. And the largest stroller in the world, Tiffany, is, is guiding um, low, but, but single digit percentage increase. So I, I think that's kind of an important proxy to look at. Signet, which is the largest stroller in the U.S. by the number of stores, they have like 3,000 stores. They're restructuring the company. They're going through a multi-year restructuring. So it's kind of been kind of a challenging period for them, but that's a very important company for the industry given that it's the kind of the proxy for the U.S. market, which represents, you know, 50% of global diamond demand. So I like to watch that as a proxy. Um, but they're still going through that restructuring. They're closing more stores this year. So we'll kind of see how that plays out. But I think, you know, if you want, you know, kind of something bullish here, I think what's going on in China, uh, you know, it just continues to be very, very exciting. Chao Taifuk, it's the largest stroller in greater China, which includes, uh, you know, mainland China, Macau, Hong Kong, they continue to open new stores. You know, they had, actually, I think I have a slide in here. Yeah, so this is new store openings for the, the largest stroller in greater China. Um, it went public in 2011. So you could see last year was the, the most store that they've ever opened since it's been a public company. And I think that kind of, that kind of shows their confidence in the future of 
demand from the Chinese consumer. I think that's extremely bullish. I think that's probably one of my favorite slides. You can see the new store opening slowed in uh, 2015 and 2016. That was when their economy slowed down. So I definitely think there's you know, a correlation with demand and new store openings. And I think this is something I really like to watch. I actually was in communication with a company a couple weeks ago, and they said not only did they open you know, over 500 stores last year, they said they plan on opening 500 this year, 500 next year, and maybe 500 the year after. So, I mean, this is significant, and with this industry, when they open a new store, it generates really strong demand because they have to buy inventory to stock the new store. So new store openings are very important you know, for the diamond industry, and I think this is, a, I, th I think, a very positive development, what's going on there. Um, and then just lastly, I have a couple slides here on man-made. Again, we'll talk about this in the panel. Um, but I, I think, you know, when you look at why has it kind of emerged, you know, as strongly as it has in the last few years, and everybody, the media loves to kind of talk about the implication of the diamond jewelry industry, but in my opinion, this is more of um, a development of diamonds that will be used in high-tech applications, whether it's quantum computing, laser equipment, optic equipment, nuclear batteries, like there's all these like really cool applications for diamonds to be used in, in technology. And we're going to get to a point where we're going to see that. And I think most of these producers kind of see that as the end game. I think that's kind of the big market they're all after. Um, I don't think it's necessarily the jewelry market. I think a lot of these companies are kind of going through this R&D process and they're actually selling their, their, their reject diamonds from the R&D process as, as diamond jewelry. And they're using that to generate cash to fund further R&D. So in my opinion, at least, that's kind of what I see going on here. I mean, there are going to be players that are going to emerge and, and focus on the jewelry business. But... I think the important takeaway is diamond and any other kind of luxury or jewelry business, it's heavily dependent on strong marketing and branding. And these companies are focused on high-tech application and supplying diamond processing chips to Apple at some point in the future. I think it's going to limit the amount of money they spend marketing and branding their product. So I think that's something to keep in mind. But again, it's, everybody wants to talk about it. You would think it's like this, the hugest development going on. It still represents less than 5% of supply and demand uh, when you look at the global diamond jewelry industry. So it's still kind of a fraction, but we're, and we're still at the very early stages. But personally, I don't see this as being what's going to you know, ultimately have a major negative impact on the, on the diamond jewelry industry. I think it's with without Lab Diamond, I think the future success of this industry is going to depend on successful you know, marketing and branding by the the natural diamond industry, not necessarily, you know, losing market share from lab-created diamonds. So, so I think that's a positive thing. And, and I always like to say, I think this is an industry where you can literally throw money at the problem um, because it's so dependent on, on marketing and branding. And, you know, the industry now has the Diamond Producers Association, which is somewhat replacing the, the De Beers um, Diamond is Forever generic diamond campaign. And last year was the first year of you know, a fully financed campaign there. So, you know, it's going to take some time, I think, for this to kind of actually, you know, make its way in a noticeable way to consumer demand, but I think it will happen. And, and I think the industry is doing the right things given the circumstance. I think we have to be, um, we have to be a little bit patient, though. I think price is really important when we're talking about man-made diamonds. The way the consumer perceives the product, I think, changes dramatically if it's priced more similar to a natural diamond. I think they kind of see it as a replacement, but I think as the price gets lower and lower and lower, I think consumers are not necessarily going to associate it as a replacement for natural diamonds. And I think that's part of what the, the Lightbox initiative about is about, which is De Beers' man-made diamond jewelry business that they started last year. But the price is going to continue to come down, in my opinion, just as production technologies improve. The Chinese have a, have a huge capacity to produce man-made diamonds. Historically, they've produced diamonds for industrial application. They produce 12 billion carats a year. Natural diamond production, for comparison, is 150 million. So they have this huge capacity to produce 
to produce pretty much as many man-made diamonds as they want in China, and they're starting to upgrade their production technologies where they can produce strawberry quality man-made diamonds. And I think there's going to be unlimited supply, you know, I would say in the next 10 years. And I think that's going to be reflected in prices. And I think as the price of this product comes down, consumers are going to associate maybe more as a fashion jewelry item that competes with a CZ or a moissanite or a colored gemstone and maybe less with a natural diamond. And I think that that's good. And I think, again, that's, I, I think, what De Beers through Lightbox is trying to, to, to push forward. Um, you know, that said, I think there will be some, you know, man-made diamond companies that do sell the product as a high-end you know, jewelry item that competes with natural diamonds, but I think there's going to be fewer of those companies because, again, I think it's going to take a lot of money to develop a strong brand to do that successfully. And this is just my forecast for, man-made, for the man-made diamond market. And I think the important thing here is when I kind of look out to you know, the size of this market and the growth of this market going forward, I think a significant part of it's going to be the fashion jewelry market, which in my opinion doesn't compete directly with the natural diamond market. So I think that's kind of the takeaway from this slide here. I, I guess maybe the only takeaway here is some people in the industry kind of believe that De Beers is kind of giving up on the natural diamond industry and they're kind of trying to to get involved in, in man-made diamond to kind of you know, strategically reposition the company. I don't see that being the case at all. And I think that's apparent in the amount of money they're spending. They just spent you know, $2 billion to go underground at Venetia. They're opening up a new cut at Zhuang in Botswana, $2 billion. They just bought a, a half a billion dollar ship to add to the Namibian fleet. They're spending a lot of money in the natural business. And I don't think they'd be doing that if they weren't enthusiastic about the future. And for comparison, they spent like about $100 million on the man-made diamond business. So again, I think it's, it's strategic in nature to do what they're doing with the man-made business. And I don't see that as a strategic growth you know, business for De Beers anytime soon. So I think that's kind of the, the last point I would, uh, I would I'd like to make on that. that does it for this episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a part of it every week. And uh, yeah, if you leave us a review at the Apple Podcast Directory, it always helps out or feel free to share it with your friends, especially if you're a geology student and you want to just do a quick study of the mining industry and of geology in general. You can't really do much better than a weekly dose of real world mining industry content. So Check it out, tell your friends about it, and until next week, take care.